A new guide put together by a unit of the Agriculture Department aims to help spur employment in rural areas. Its resource guide includes sources of funding available from the USDA itself. For more on the program, USDA's Chief of Staff for Rural Development, Farah Ahmad. Ms. Ahmad, good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And let's begin with the part of USDA that you work in in the first place, that it is concerned with rural development, but not necessarily agricultural development. And I guess it might be surprising to a degree that USDA is involved in non-farm work in rural areas. Tell us more about your mission. I am so excited to be here today and to talk to you a little bit about our work at the Department of Agriculture. So the area of USDA that I work in as chief of staff is called rural development. And really our mission is to support rural communities and help them thrive economically and to really help build prosperity across this country. And one thing that we do that I think many folks may not know is that rural communities actually are pretty diverse. They're not monolithic. In fact, if you look at you know the racial and ethnic makeup or just even the industry diversity across rural communities, they're very different, whether it's rural communities in the, the Southwest or across the border in Appalachia or even up North in the Pacific Northwest. You know, I think there is a, a perception that most of these rural communities are agricultural based or farm based, when in fact that's not the case. Only one in five jobs in rural communities is actually agricultural based. And most of these rural communities aren't actually dependent on any one industry. And so rural communities are actually diversified in what they do in their economy. And so our job in rural development is actually to support and help grow those local economies. Um, and help support those diverse economies. Because when you go through rural areas, and I've spent a lot of time in the back roads of Appalachia, you do see dead factories, sites of former industrial activity, and you do see a lot of poverty. And you drive through the small towns, and they're all boarded up for the most part, you know, a few exceptions, but generally there's not much going on there. So it seems like over the decades, the agriculture has withdrawn There were other industries, and now those industries have gone. So what's the essential challenge here of getting rural employment up a notch so that there's uh, less poverty in those areas? Yeah. And, you know, farming and agriculture, of course, still is a core part of many rural communities. It's just not all of rural communities. But this is a good opportunity to kind of recognize all that rural communities do to contribute to the economy. So they are still the backbone of agricultural and the food supply chain, but also supplying natural resources, whether that's through forestry or even through energy. So they play a critical role in supporting the U.S. economy and urban places as well. But you're right, you know, there's a lot of persistent poverty in rural places. And one of our main goals is to do what we can to bring financial assistance to those places, particularly when it comes to workforce needs. So what we like to do is work with communities, have them tell us what their needs are, their vision, understand the assets that their communities and regions bring and use our financial assistance to harness those local assets to really drive their economy. And so one thing that we hope to do with the Rural Workforce Development Guide is to provide a resource for communities to understand what the federal government has to offer as they're thinking through their workforce development needs 
And as their business community looks towards trying to get the kinds of workers they need to sustain their businesses. We're speaking with Farah Ahmad. She is chief of staff for rural development at the Agriculture Department. So what are the essential things local areas can do? Uh, I mean, who is this guide aimed for? Is it aimed at local officials, elected officials, town managers, that type of person? And what are some of the things they can do to get their economies a little bit, to light the burner a little bit underneath? Yeah, it's a great question. So the USDA Resource Guide for Rural Workforce Development that we launched a little earlier this year is really aimed towards community leaders. So it's kind of all of those folks that you listed and then some, because we know that workforce development really takes partnership at the local and regional level to get off the ground. And so this guide is really focused on showcasing resources across the federal government, so not just USDA, and to help them more easily think about how they can create jobs, train talent, expand educational opportunities, or even provide much-needed technical assistance. And it outlines programs and services that are available across the federal family that support workforce development, specifically in rural places. And we should point out that the guide is not some 500-page tome, but it's a 20-page highly graphic guide. And I'm looking at page uh, one page here. I guess it's page 12, Rural Workforce Resource Guide Matrix. And it talks about customers, workforce development planning, infrastructure and equipment, industry and employer engagement, which gets to my question. In developing the workforce, you also have to have a concomitant development of the economy so that there are places for developed workers to go without moving to, you know, Pittsburgh or moving to Philadelphia or moving to the big city. Right. I mean, one thing that's really great about this guide, and I'm glad you mentioned that it's only 20 pages, is that it really outlines clearly sort of four key elements of workforce development that we can help finance as the federal government. So there's workforce development planning, There's infrastructure and equipment financing. There's industry and employer engagement and entrepreneurship and local business development. And then finally, education, training, and apprenticeship. So these are really core elements as a community or region is thinking about their workforce and what they need to do to support it. These are pieces of the puzzle. And so what we aim to do in this guide is lay out those four pieces of the puzzle and say, hey, here's where USDA can support you. Here is where Department of Labor can actually provide much-needed grant assistance or the Small Business Administration. And we want to make it as user-friendly as possible. The government is already a huge, complicated machine, and it shouldn't be the job of communities to try to understand all of that complexity. It's really our job as federal employees to provide resources in a community-centered, user-centered way. And so at the back of this guide, there really is a matrix that says, you know, depending on who you are, what can work for you. So you can look at the matrix and say, oh, if I'm a customer, here's programs that work for me. If I'm focused on workforce development planning, here are some resources all across those pieces of the puzzle that I talk about. And to be honest with you, Tom, this is actually a good resource for our colleagues in the federal government, because we don't always understand what our colleagues do in other parts of our own departments, let alone across other federal agencies. But it's really critical that we work together to support communities, because there may be something that USDA rural development can fund. Say we, you know, I know we can fund 
uh, equipment for universities for you know distance learning. Maybe we can do one part of that, but maybe we need Department of Labor to come in and fund a different part of their workforce needs. And so this is really aiming to bring all of these resources to bear in one place. And as we do our work as federal employees, I'm gonna have this guide handy when I work with communities to make sure that when I am talking to local leaders uh, in a rural place that I share with them, that they can reach out to the VA or Department of Labor or other places as needed. And the guide does have some examples, case histories of rural areas that did score big in development. Anyone that stands out in your mind that's a great example? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because the other thing this does is try to bring to light what it could look like if you bring these federal resources to bear. And I think that's the best way of trying to make sense of all this is really looking at a success story or a case study. So there's actually two that come to mind that I I really appreciate in this guide. So the first is about a high school, Plymouth High School. And it has one of those programs that people may be familiar with where when you attend a high school, you can also dual enroll in a college in your state to get college credit. It's really becoming a common practice for a lot of uh, a lot of schools around the country. But what Plymouth High School, which was located in a small rural town, I think about 2,000 people. Plymouth, Ohio, by the way. They didn't have a local college where young people in the high school could take those classes and get that credit. And so they partnered with USDA and our distance learning and telemedicine program to actually build out their online college curriculum with those colleges so those students could get credit for that. And a lot of those courses were actually focused on a STEM curriculum because their regional workforce needs were really related to STEM. And so they really kind of connected the dots around What is the region need for workforce and how can we start to grow a pipeline of kids who will become adults and entering the workforce? And so USDA was really happy to support that effort with our distance learning and telemedicine program. And to your point that this can be an intergovernmental function, uh, I'm looking at the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation Investments Target Cycle of Poverty, and they built a business incubator in that area. And it involved the USDA Rural Development, your group, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Indian Health Service, FDIC, and even the Treasury Department's Community Development Financial Institutions Fund. So four or five different departments involved in this one case. And I think that's what you were saying, that there's a lot of things that can be brought to bear in concert across the government. Absolutely, Tom. And that's a great example. And that's exactly why we wanted to highlight the Four Bands Community Fund, who really helped develop this incubator in the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe Reservation. Because of that, it really is a great example of how the federal family can work together to support a community's vision. In this case, you know, it was that incubator that was really supporting entrepreneurship and helping entrepreneurs figure out how to finance their businesses and really make their ideas come to life. Farah Ahmad is Chief of Staff for Rural Development at the Agriculture Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. Glad to be here. We'll post this interview along with a link to that resource guide at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving 
our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about, but that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and what you can do to help them. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and 
how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author, she turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. 
Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.